Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. Now, as Pastor Phil said, we are in a new series called Living in Fabulous Babylon. And uh, we have a lot to get through. So I'm going to warn you, if I am coming at you uh, fast with a lot of information, uh, that is because we have a lot of things to cover uh, this morning. So we're going to dive right into the text of Jeremiah 29.4. And this is how it reads. It says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And that's it. All right, so we have to stop there, one, because we need to understand the complexities of what is happening here and why this is important, but two, because this is where Pastor Phil said I needed to stop. So this is, this is where we stop. So one thing that we have to understand is Jeremiah is standing before the people who have been exiled brought into a land not their own, brought into a culture not their own, a language not their own, religion not their own, and they're angry, and they're confused, and they're scared, and so now Jeremiah stands before them with a word from God. What's different, though, that you should know is that now they are listening listening to God through his prophet. You see, just prior to this, though, the people of God had rejected God and his prophets and his word, and now they're attentively listening to God and his prophet. They knew God's truth but rejected God's truth, and that is not far from reality today. Sure, you may be in attendance here, but does God have your attention is the question. For instance, a new Gallup poll found 20% of Americans say the Bible is the actual word of God and is to be taken literally word for word, only 20%. Of the, the remaining, the largest chunk of respondents take a middle road saying the Bible is the inspired word of God, but hey, not everything in it should be taken literally. Meaning there's about 50% of Americans who say, yes, the Bible is inspired, but let's not take it word for word, uh, there's different ways to interpret the Bible. And you would say, okay, well, that's just for America. What happens if we bring it into the church to Christians? Well, it's not as different as you would think. 25% of American Christians say every word of the Bible should be taken literally, while 16% of Christians say it's a book of legend and fables. 58% say it is the inspired word of God, but not everything in it should be taken literally. So, of course, you and I know we live in a culture that has now departed from truth and even now gets to this uh, concerning demographic of, is the Bible even true? We live in a culture where truth, real truth, is rare, so it is no wonder that even believers have doubt and what is real and what is true. If your core belief structure distrusts God's word, then that will affect your values. That will affect your actions. So today, is is God's word true? When we talk about Christians living in a post-Christian culture, it is more important, it is the uh, highest thing to understand that God's word really is true. So today, I'm gonna give you nine factors that we're going to fly through that hopefully detail how we can have assurance that God's word is true. You didn't come 
anticipating an Apologetics 101 and Church History 101 course, but that is what you are getting this morning as we walk through the truth of God's Word. So point number one is this. We doubt God's Word because of our own sin. The number one reason why we have issue with God's Word is not because of all the remaining things I'm going to point out, but the number one issue is because of our own sin nature. And we see this in Jeremiah. This is detailed extensively throughout the prophet's book. Look at Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3, in a couple of select passages. It says, I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. They stopped asking. Listen, they stopped asking, where is the Lord? who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived. God says, I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty, but after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priest quit asking. Notice the, 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 uh, the progression here right? The people stopped asking, where is God? Now, the priests have stopped asking, where is God? The experts in the law no longer knew me, and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. Has a nation ever exchanged its God? But they are not gods, yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. God reminds the people, just like I think he's reminding us today, there was a point, he's like, remember in your youth how you followed me so passionately, and yet now you are exchanging God's very glory for these useless other things. Jeremiah 5, 12 through 13 was one that really stood out to me. It says, they, the, the, the nation, have con- contradicted the Lord and insisted it won't happen. Harm won't come to us. We won't see sword or famine. The prophets are only wind, for the Lord's word is not in a meaning. There was a point where they, they heard the truth of God. They heard the warnings of God. They understood there needed to be repentance and reconciliation. And when the prophets came, they basically said, you're a vapor before us. There's, there's nothing in value in your words. And so they ignored us, and this will never happen to us. Just like many today, maybe in this room, but certainly within our culture, say, no, 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 there certainly won't be any judgment. There certainly won't be any consequence to our action. Let's just do what we want to do. But look at the warning here. Jeremiah 12, look at the end of 13. It says, this will in fact happen to them. The people in their arrogance said, we can defy God's truth without consequence. And God tells them, this will happen to you. Number one reason we doubt God's word is because of our own sin. And, and, and today, even when talking to students and college students, we, we distrust the validity of God's word. So a couple things I want to point out. So one, the Bible claims to be God's word. This is point number two. The Bible claims to be God's word. God's word is always accompanied by his presence, He is invisible, yet makes himself known by his word. His presence is his word, and his word is his presence. We see this in youth. We're going over John. 
Right now we're in chapter 1, so I point out this, this verse actually in Luke, which complemented John 1. It says, while Jesus was standing by Lake Gennesaret, many people pushed to get near him, and then they wanted to hear the word of God. And I point out to students what a beautiful play in words that Luke is, is doing here because you have the very word of God in flesh proclaiming the word of God to the people. And so it was interchangeable. Jesus is the word. The word is Jesus. When you have the word, you are seeing the very word of God and his presence, and it's all interchangeable. God's word is always accompanied by his presence. His presence is always accompanied by his word. And so the authors of the Bible claim to speak God's word. Much of the Bible was written by prophets of God. The prophet was someone who was to say exactly what God had told them. And you see this throughout the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah hears the words of God and even argues with God about what is going to be said. So look, look at Exodus 4.30. And I put this in the slides. It says, this is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people. Tell them everything I commanded you. Do not omit a word. The prophet was to speak everything that God had said. And throughout the scriptures, the authors uh, that were called prophets are not claimed to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. You see this in 2 Peter, 2 Samuel, Matthew 22, where they, they uh, boldly proclaim, this is what the Lord says. The Bible claims to be breathed out by God. Like writing about the entire Old Testament, the Apostle Paul declared all Scripture is God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3. Jesus describes the Scriptures as the very word that comes from the mouth of God in Matthew 4. And the New Testament was seen as being revealed as Scripture as well. When the New Testament authors use the word Scripture, they usually have the Old Testament in mind since the New Testament was still in the process of being written. Nevertheless, they were also aware that Jesus had told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would continue the process of inspiring new Scripture. You see this in John 14. Paul, for example, understood that his writings were words taught by the Spirit according to 1 Corinthians 2. And he taught that God was continuing the, the process of revelation in others as well in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. So what the Bible says, God says, and vice versa. Another way the Bible claims to be the word of God is an expressed formula that you see all throughout the Bible. What the Bible, what God says, the Bible says. Often an Old Testament passage will, will claim God said it. Yet when this same text is cited in the New Testament, it asserts that the scriptures said it. The reverse is true as well. I'll give you an example. And there's, there's hundreds. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, says this. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we see this in Old Testament, but look how it's referred to in Galatians 3, 8. It says, the scripture saw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So we see this reference to the scriptures uh, here in Galatians 3.8. So not only that, not only we have this cross-referencing within the Bible to show that they believed that they were holy and inspired, but the, but the biggest claim is Jesus had an extremely high view of scripture as well. Here's a quick list for you. 
He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God in Matthew 4. He said that the law is imperishable in Matthew 5. He asserted that Scripture cannot be broken or fail in its purpose, John 10. He affirmed the ultimate supremacy of Scripture over human tradition in Matthew 15. He considered Scripture to be without error in Matthew 22, and he considered the Scripture historically reliable in Matthew chapter 12. Meaning today that if you were to come back and say that I I don't have a lot of trust in the Bible or I doubt God's word is true, then you are directly refuting what Jesus said himself about the scriptures. So the question then becomes, do you trust who Jesus is because Jesus trusted the scriptures? You guys see where we're getting. All right, the second thing is this, or the third thing. The Bible is historically accurate. One of the main things that I discuss with students, I discuss with college students, I've discussed with adults, is this concept that the Bible does not have a lot of history behind it, and the complete opposite is true. The Bible is not merely a book containing theological teachings that are unrelated to history, but the theological statements of Scripture are so closely linked with historical events. For example, Paul maintained that if, the, if Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead was not a historical fact, then our whole entire faith is futile. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Scriptural characters like Paul were not a group of gullible religious people who were ready to believe anything that came along. No, these were well-educated men who knew who Jesus is and was and followed him in such a way. I like how uh, Nelson Gluck put it this way. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery, to this day, still, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements of the Bible. I mean, there has not been one discovery today that has disproven what the Bible has claimed. Archaeologist uh, Miller Burroughs puts it this way. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. There's one uh, pretty well-noted example of this where there's an archaeologist, William Ramsey, uh, who from the beginning believed that the Bible contained fabricated myths. And so he did what many did, is he went to go and disprove the Bible. He took his expertise to say, I will go and I will put an end to the belief that the Word of God is true. So early in his life, Ramsey had been influenced by this kind of wild theology which taught that the writers of the Bible were more uh, interested in, in promoting a based theological perspective than in, in accurately recording history. So in the course of his studies, though, which was extensive, Ramsey was surprised to find the extensive archaeological evidence for the accuracy of Bible narratives. One thing that impressed Ramsey was about Luke, the writer of Acts and Luke, um, to which he ultimately wrote, Luke is an historian of the first rank. And he goes on to conclude, because he became a believer, and if the Bible was accurate in its historical details, then he considered there is to be a good chance that the biblical authors would be trusted to accurately relate the scriptural significance of historical events as well. Meaning he went to go disprove Christianity through archaeological discoveries, but ended up becoming a believer himself because he noted everything that the Bible has stated has been proven true. So if it's true in the historical facts, it's clear that it's also true in the spiritual facts. 
Next point, the trustworthiness of the biblical author. Say, okay, well, we, we know accurately that there are historical data, but what do we know about the biblical author? So as we saw in point one, the biblical authors claim to be receiving their message from God. Now, if the biblical writers were known liars, there'd be no reason to accept their claim. But they were honest men of integrity, which lends support to the credibility of their claim, which is that it's inspired by God. You see this, um, first they were taught the, the highest standard of ethics, including the obligation to always tell the truth. We see this in Ephesians 4, therefore each of you must put a falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Second, the writers of the Bible paid a high price for their truthfulness. Uh, for example, Peter and the 11 apostles, as well as Paul, were all imprisoned. Uh, most were eventually martyred for their witness for Christ. Indeed, being faithful even to the point of death was an earmark of the early Christian church. I put this down. It's one of my uh, favorite quotes. People sometimes die for what they believe to be true and isn't, but few are willing to die for what they know to be false. And see, these, these early disciples of Jesus, these apostles knew who Jesus is, knew what he had done and believed him to be true and gave their lives promoting that truth. Biblical witnesses died for the truth they proclaimed, believing their message had come from God. While not being proof, such evidence is an indication of the Bible is what the biblical writers claimed it to be, the very word of God. But more than that, as I said, there's a lot of information coming at you fast. The unity of the Bible is what's still today one of the biggest marvels of what we have in our hands. The Bible is amazing in its unity and vast diversity. Even though the Bible was composed by many persons of different backgrounds and different time periods, nevertheless, it manifests a unity that would indicate there being one mind in its writing. I gave another quick list here, so take these into account when you're thinking about the Bible. It was written over a period of some 1,500 years or more, between 1400 B.C. to nearly 1000 A.D. It's composed of 66 different books, was written by 40 different authors was composed in three different languages, uh, Hebrew, Greek, and some Aramaic. Contains discussions on hundreds of different topics. Was written in a variety of different literary styles, including historical, poetic, didactic, parabolic, uh, allegorical, apocalyptic, and epic. It was composed by authors of many different occupations, and the list could go on. Yet in spite of the Bible's vast diversity... The Bible reveals amazing unity. Uh, first, it is one continuous unfolding drama of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, from paradise lost to paradise regained, from the creation of all things to the consummation of all things. It is one beautiful narrative. Second, the Bible has one central theme, the very person of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Christ is seen as the anticipation in the New Testament, by the way of realization, Messiah has come. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the New Testament, he is present. He is here. And then lastly, from beginning to end, the Bible has one unified message. Humanity's problem is sin. It is a sickness that penetrates all of us, and the solution to that sin is salvation through Christ. And so one unifying message by all these people. To highlight the incredible unity is to try to give you like a, a, an idea, right? 
Imagine if I were to ask, or if we were to find a family medical advice composed of 40 different doctors from over 1,500 years ago, right? If I asked 40 doctors today their opinions on mass, there wouldn't even be unity. If we talk about 40 doctors from thousands of years ago, would that book be unified? And, and, and it wouldn't. One chapter would say all disease is caused by demons that, that need to be exercised. Another would claim that disease is in the blood, which needs to be drained out, so just throw some leeches on it. Still another would claim disease is psychosomatic, mind over matter. Such a book would lack unity. Even if they knew what each other had written, they would disagree and write their own different perspectives. There would be no, con- no continuity, and, and no one would consider it a definite source to answer what is the cure of disease. Yet the Bible is infinitely more diverse than these subjects and has come together and is unified on all of them. Next, the documents we possess are accurate copies of the original. This is where we start getting into church history. And, and, and in reality, we actually had this question a couple weeks ago in youth. How, like, how did our Bible come to be? Can I trust what I have in my hands. And so quickly with a few youth, I went through a couple things just like this. So the documents we possess are accurate copies of the original. In 1948, uh, there was a discovery from some shepherds of Old Testament manuscripts in the Qumran caves near the Dead Sea, became famously the Dead Sea Scrolls. These manuscripts have been hidden for over 2,000 plus years. They serve as a control by which they gauge the accuracy of our copies uh, today. So what did the scholars find? See, the idea when they found these is like, aha, if we take these scrolls, which were some of the earliest copies of our documents, and compare them to what we have today, we're going to find errors abounding because so much time has passed. Instead, what they found was the complete and total opposite. Miller Burroughs, who wrote a book on the Dead Sea Scrolls, there will be no, I guarantee when I was reading this, there is no Netflix adaptation of this book. It is not exciting. All right, but he writes this, Miller Burroughs, it is a matter of wonder that through something like a thousand years, the text underwent so little alteration. That what they found they thought would contradict all of Christianity, but instead what it did was confirm it. Old Testament scholar Glyson Archer wrote concerning the two copies of the book as Isaiah found in caves. says, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling, meaning nothing changed the message as a whole. It was, it was complete. Thus, we can say with assurance that those who copied the text of the books of the Old Testament did so with extreme and abundant care. What about the New Testament, Right? All right, the degree of accuracy of the New Testament exceeds 99%. It's like .0001 error in the New Testament documents that they found, which is greater than any other book from the ancient world. It's not even comparable. To give you a brief, super nerdy chart. Do we have the chart? Let's put up the chart. All right, so I wanted to show you this just to show, like, if we're talking about comparing the Bible to anything else in ancient history, to show you the idea of how spot on it was, you have books like the History of Rome. And so we have a span of 400 to 1,000 years from its copy. I mean, 1,000 years have passed till we have an accurate copy, and we have one partial and 19 copies of it. When you compare that to the New Testament, 
we have a 50-year gap between writing, which is the earliest window in ancient history, and we have over 5,366 copies of this with .001 error in the copies. There is literally no comparison in ancient documentation that stacks up to the New Testament. And see, right here I have to clarify. Christians claim that God inspired or breathed out the text of the original manuscripts. Christians believe that God in his providence preserved the copies from all substantial error. And this shouldn't be hard to grasp because we've seen him do this with his people, Israel. We've seen this do it with the line of David. We've seen him do it with his church. So it makes sense to say God also preserved his scripture, his word. But again, all these numbers, it's hard to say, like, well, what does that look like? When we talk about textual variations and you have atheists coming, well, like, there's variations in the text and here's what that means. I wanted to give you an idea of this, all right? So let's say Arvest, is that a bank here? That's a bank here, right? Arvest? I'm still Wells Fargo. I need to move things. All right, so Arvest, let's say you get a text from Arvest and it says this. Ooh, have won $7 million. Now you would look at that text and you would immediately understand what it is, right? Like you would go, I'm going to go collect my $7 million from my bank right now. That's going to be a good day. But maybe let's say you look at this and you're like, well, maybe it says Lou, you know? Uh, so you go back and you ask, and they send you this text. You have, what, who have won $7 million? You're like, okay, well, clearly it's still the same message, but this person has a difficult time texting. So you ask again, can you, can you give me some clarification? They send you this text. You're like, yo, have won $7 million. You're like, all right, maybe they're a little bit more street than I assumed, or their toddler has taken their phone. Uh, so you ask one more time, can you just please clarify so I have what is going on here? And they send you this text, and you're like, all right, I give up at this point. I'm just going to go to the bank. So that you have won $7 million. So to give you an idea of textual variations, that's what we're talking about. Why are we sure of the message when there are more and more variants? Because each variant is in a different place, and with each new line, we get another confirmation of every other line in the original text. Now, here's the thing. Four big things to point out with this. One, even with one line, 100% of you understood what was going on here. Even with a letter missing, you understood you have won $7 million, right? The more lines, the more variants, but the more variants, the more sure we are of what was uh, intended in the text. The second thing we need to point out, though, is there are hundreds of times more biblical manuscripts than there are lines in the above example that I just gave, and there's a greater percentage of variance in just what we saw than the entire original manuscripts. Like, what we just saw had a higher degree of variant than all of the manuscripts put together from ancient literature, which is just, I know that's nerdy of me, but that's just fascinating that it is that minute that we uh, see those errors. This is mostly due to the extreme care of the text. Now, copies were made by the scribes while without detailing the grueling duties they had to perform in order to simply just copy the text. I'll just simply say this. If a scribe wrote a copy of Isaiah, let's, let's forget about the ritualistic cleansing, but once he finished his copy, if there was one thing, just one error in his work, the entire thing was destroyed and he would start over anew. So he took his job extremely seriously. 
So we can have assurance that God's truth is God's truth, that we have the correct copies of God's truth, that it is word for word what God had said. Let's quickly go over other things. Scientific knowledge before its time. One of the amazing things about the Bible is that it makes scientifically accurate statements about the body, the earth, the heavens that predate their discovery by usually two to 3,000 years. Moreover, such scientific statements that the Bible made were made during cultures that were largely superstitious and not scientific in their approach. So when the Bible was making these claims, people thought that the early Christians and early believers were crazy because of these. For instance, the earth... Uh, most people believe that the uh, ocean floor was just a flat kind of sandy thing. Well, the Bible says the ocean floor contains deep valleys in 2 Samuel and towering mountains. The ancients thought the floor was flat, sandy, and bowl-like. The ocean contains underwater springs. We see this in Genesis 7, Job 38, Proverbs 8. The other civilizations believed the ocean was fed by rain and by rivers. What about when we look at the universe? I mean, recent discoveries have shown that we continue to expand our knowledge, or I should say lack of knowledge, about the universe. So one of the amazing things about the Bible when it comes to statements about heavens is the errors that the Bible writers did not make. For instance, they did not consider the stars to be near us and fixed in their positions. Uh, Genesis 1 speaks of the heavens as an expanse, which literally means continuously spreading out, which is recently just proven again. Jeremiah implies the heavens cannot be measured in Jeremiah 31. The biblical authors did not consider the heavens to have existed from eternity, but taught that they had a beginning in Genesis 1. And the biblical statements about the heavens are common assumptions today, but they were anything but common in the days during that time. But nothing, nothing compares. When we talk about these predictions, nothing compares to your uh, next point, the predictions of the biblical prophets. So one, we see tons of prophecy fulfilled in Old Testament, New Testament alike. So I gave you just one example. Like Memphis and Thebes, the prophet Ezekiel wrote in the 6th century, uh, I didn't give him this verse, but Ezekiel 30 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images in Memphis, and it's probably the grizzlies. Uh, I will inflict punishment on thieves. I will cut off the hordes of thieves. And so what happens years later, hundreds of years later, both Memphis and Thebes were destroyed after Ezekiel's prophecy. What is most significant, though, is that the idols were removed entirely from Memphis, but they were not removed from Thebes, just as Ezekiel had predicted. Again, hundreds of years later, proven also by archaeology. But here's the big one. The coming of Christ. Many of the Bible's predictions uh, center around the coming of Christ. Consider the following predictions. Again, I could have given you a list of hundreds, but I'm just narrowing it down. Let's read through very quickly. Be from the seed of Abraham. He would be of the tribe of Judah. He'd be of the house of David. He would be born a virgin. He'd be born in the city of Bethlehem, be appointed by the Holy Spirit, perform miracles, be rejected by the Jews, die a humiliating death. He'd be rejected by his own people. He'd be silenced before his accusers. He would be mocked. He would be pierced in his hands and his feet. He'd be put to death with thieves. He would pray for his persecutors. He would be pierced in his side. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. He'd have people casting lots for his garments, and he would rise from the dead. All of these predictions about the Messiah. And, and to give you an idea, and I know there's a ton of different analogies, my favorite one is the statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling all of the ones listed in Scripture is equivalent to if I were to take you, put you on stage, blindfold you, spin you around, take a molecule 
mark it, and then throw it into the expanse of the universe, unblindfold you, and tell you to find it. That is the same statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling all of these predictions. It requires a movement of God. So several points about these real quick. First, one of the tests of the false prophets was whether their predictions came to pass. Those whose predictions failed were killed by stoning, a practice no doubt caused serious pause in any that were about to proclaim the word of God. Their word was also completely rejected. So if it was proven false, it was omitted. Second, unlike many predictions today, many of those prophecies were very specific. They would name the very tribe, the very city, the very time of Christ's coming. Third, unlike the forecasting found in like TikTok tabloids, none of these predictions failed. Fourth, since these prophecies were written hundreds of years before Christ was born, no one could have been reading the trends at the times or made intelligent guesses. Lastly, many of these predictions were beyond human ability to force a fulfillment. I had a very interesting discussion several years ago with a young atheist man on a school campus where he came, he's like, all right, you Christians say that, uh, you know, there's this statistical probability and just Jesus fulfilled all those. And I said, yes, because if you look at this, he couldn't control his, his, where he was born. He couldn't control all these things. And he's like, aha, I'm going to stump you because if he were God, then he can control all these things. And I was like, you just proved Christianity <laughs> because no, if it were mere human, he could not do all of these things. So the question comes, if he did all of these things, what must logically take place? He is God. And that atheist young man just stood and went like, oops, (laughs) and walked away. But that's the idea is if Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, it wasn't just happenstance, it proves he's God. Next, the Holy Spirit work in the canonization of Scripture. I think one of the things that we have to fix today is when we say, well, they didn't have the Bible back in those days. That's true, they didn't have exactly what we have and we have access to today, but they did have Scripture. It was the Old Testament. They did. They weren't, it wasn't oral tradition from oral tradition. They had written documents that they can hold. They had the Old Testament, which was considered God's Word. And several times in Paul's letter, he refers to the Gospels as Scripture, and Peter refers to Paul's work as Scripture as well. So, super simplified church history. How did we get this Bible today? How is it that we have a small library within our hands? Well, the first canon was the Muratorian canon. Uh, canon. This was compiled in uh, one, it was 170 AD. Uh, and basically at this, all of the New Testament books, except Hebrew, James, First and Second Peter, and Third John were canonized because most of the churches were using all the other texts, Old Testament, New Testament. In uh, 363 AD, the Council of Laodicea stated that only the uh, Old Testament... And 26 books of the New Testament, which is just everything but Revelation, uh, were canon and to be read in the churches. Council of Hippo, Council of Carthage, Council of Nicaea affirmed 27 books as authoritative. Um, So this included uh, the book of Revelation. The councils followed something similar to the following principles, like what was the decision? And I want to put out there, this wasn't just some guys picking up books that they liked and didn't like, and I'll get into that in a second. So they had three uh, major tests, right? So one was the author, was the author an apostle or have a close connection with the, the apostle? Meaning they would get a letter and they would say, all right, first off, who's the author and can we trace it down to have an eyewitness or we actually know who the author is? 
So let me show you this. this is in his book, uh, Beyond Belief to Convictions. Josh McDowell says, The overwhelming weight of scholarship confirms the account of Jesus' life, the history of the early church, and the letters that form the bulk of the New Testament were all written by men who were either eyewitnesses of the events they recorded or contemporaries of eyewitnesses, meaning they were there. When we talk about who wrote it, we're like, we are talking about eyewitnesses or people who knew the eyewitnesses. They weren't random people that wrote these thousands of years later. These were people who wrote during the time where this was happening. This is present. In another book, Person of Interest, J. Warner Wallace put it this way, the students of the apostles were the first to describe what their teachers told them about Jesus. Ignatian of Antioch and Polycarp, for example, described the Jesus they learned about at the feet of Apostle John and Clement of Rome described the Jesus he learned about from the Apostle Paul. Letters from Christian leaders in the first 300 years of the Common Era revealed 935 quotes of Matthew, 453 books, quotes from the book of Mark, 990 from the book of Luke, 859 verses from the book of John. Meaning, if we were to just limit our belief off of the early disciples of the apostles, we could still fully construct the New Testament based on just their understanding and their learning from the apostles of Jesus. So one, was the author an apostle or have a close connection with the apostle? Two, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? It wasn't just a couple guys, but as a church, do we acknowledge these books? Number three, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And lastly, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Spirit? Again, it's, it's crucial to remember that these councils did not determine the canon, the early church councils uh, did not pick it. It was God and God alone who determined which books belonged in the Bible. It was simply a matter of God's imparting to his followers what he had already decided. So it wasn't that they sat there and picked. And if you go read church history, we're, we're looking at hundreds of years of prayer and discussion and discernment all in your hands. And the main thing was God just revealed to us continually your word. That's what those councils look like. Uh, Robert Plummer put it this way, the canon is not an authorized collection of writings in that the church conferred its authority or approval upon a list of books. Rather, the canon is a collection of authoritative writings that have an inherent authority, meaning the authority is already there as works uniquely inspired by God. See, we didn't attribute authority to the Bible. The Bible was authority itself. So canonization is a process of recognizing that authority, not bestowing it from an outside source. And the next 200 years follow a similar pattern of continual discussion throughout the early church. But lastly, I'll just say this. We can know all that information. Hopefully today as you're leaving and you're like, I have just exploded with all of this stuff, Josh. Just I'm going to get some coffee. I got my notes. I'm going to review. But here's the thing. All this is great information to have. It's great information to know, but we can still take this information, know this information, hopefully have a stronger faith, but the question still comes down to the last point. It's about knowing and trusting God. All this is, is great, but do you know and trust God because you can still take all of that information and discredit it personally. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 through 24. It says, this is what the Lord says, the wide person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth, but the one who boasts should boast in this one thing, 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. See, the, the secret is not uh, to know these necessary things, but, but the secret is to know the person Adrian Rogers put it this way, the Bible is a supernatural, spiritual, sovereign, surviving, sustaining, supercharged book about my Savior. That's what the Bible is. Our confidence is in God. Our confidence is in God because he knows how things will transpire, and he is working on plans toward a very good end. If God tells us now what he will do in the future, the most important thing is the mind of God that comes from the very presence of God. Meaning our, our prayer should look like this in Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. It says, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is indeed in the Lord, is what? He's blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its root out towards a, a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. I mean, one of the key indications that our trust is not in God, our trust is not in his word, according to Jeremiah 17, is if we are perpetually worried. And why should we? Even in the very beginning of our message, God pointed out to the people in exile that I am with you. So you worry, but that's an indication of do you do you trust his word that he is truly with you? John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to know truth, and that is through Jesus. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.